And welcome to another edition of the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. This is Jason Poblet coming to you again, as always, at least lately, right across from Washington, D.C. in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. Today we have a very special guest, Abby Joles, and uh, she is not only a friend, but also an international human rights litigator. Uh, she has been a D.C. lawyer for a long, long time and has built a practice uh, defending international human rights. And we're excited to have her for many reasons, not the least of which we can talk for hours, right, Abe? And not, not even know uh, that we've been on the phone or together for a long time about these issues. But she's also been on the front lines uh, doing international litigation. She, in human rights, she's been admitted to the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where she achieved landmark decisions. She was the first, I believe, right, Abe? First American, that, that's uh, right. your that's first American right. woman that was uh, admitted uh, to to the ICC as well. You you were part of the International well, I, I Criminal the, Court. The the first of all, thank you so much for having me, um, and I'm honored to be here. So I was the first American woman admitted at the International Criminal Court for the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I was the I had a, a landmark case there, so I that's was right. the first one. Uh, to to achieve a landmark uh, 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 result um, in that particular area, uh, and, and but, were also but admitted, there were other Americans. Other American, yeah, but you were the, but you were also the first American admitted to the African Court on Human and People's Rights uh, as well. Uh, people, yeah, Human and People's Rights. That's that's correct. I was. That. Yeah, so, you, so you've had and, like a a wide and and you were also involved with the Special Tribunal for Lebanon and uh, the the Discipline Council for the Special Court. Of Sierra Leone well, too. The 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 I was on the I've done trainings and participated uh, with the uh, Special Tribunal of Lebanon and uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. I was on the the Discipline Council. That was where we uh, where we wrote uh, advisory opinions to the judges on on attorney discipline uh, issues and uh, had some uh, achieve some good results there too yeah i mean before we get into the subject matter and one of the reasons i wanted abby on the show was to uh set me straight because she knows i'm a big skeptic of the icc of the international organization system in general of any type of international pressure system that forces the u.s into these arrangements that undermine i think u.s sovereignty our constitution and, and even the sovereignty of our allies. I mean, if Congress hasn't spoken, if the executive hasn't taken a clear position, I usually see that as a, a vacuum that must be filled before there's US involvement on this. And we've talked a lot about this, we've debated it, but before we get into any of that, uh, what drew you to this, this area of the law? Because tell our listeners a little bit about your legal, uh, your path to the law. I think it's important for folks who, uh, maybe considering a career or a career shift in this space, because we need a lot more litigators, a lot more practitioners in this space. What was your journey to this? How'd you get here? Well, uh, actually, I uh, grew up in a place that wasn't wasn't as famous uh, back then as it is now, but I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Mm. So it, it, at the time when I was growing up there, it was somewhat isolated. Uh, my father was a a lawyer, uh, a human rights lawyer. Uh, he civil rights. He did work in Mississippi, and he 
and so I, it was kind of on my to-do list. Um, I then went to, uh, I went to uh, college and, and law school, uh, college outside of Oregon, but law school actually in Oregon. And then I was actually offered a, a position on Capitol Hill. And I didn't, uh, I didn't end up taking it because I ended up uh, taking the bar in uh, Washington, D.C. and uh, doing criminal defense work. Um, I have now tried uh, hundreds of cases, uh, uh, jury and bench, and, and uh, by the time 2004 or five came around. I don't want to reveal my age. But <laughs> I I uh, I decided that I uh, wanted to get out into the international arena. I had studied uh, abroad. I I had studied at London School of Economics, and I, I I am a French speaker, and so it was kind of. And I'm a human. I was a human rights lawyer, but I had done mostly uh, criminal uh, defense and other related matters um so i i i you've also you, you, you've also testified in congress on this issue i mean that that yeah, but that came later that came, that came later, later. Uh, okay that that came later this is in two if i hadn't done that yet uh so in in 2004 or 5 i guess i started developing an interest and part of it was my uh, uh, a colleague of mine who had been to uh, been at the tribunal and been active in the tribunal there the, in the district of columbia we have a very interesting bar and they're extremely diverse and we've got a lot of good lawyers here um and uh, and uh, good lawyers and we've got good judges because they 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 have to work uh, mm. they they are they work very hard and they uh, they handle lots of cases and they, so it's good training but anyway, so I, I was chosen, uh, I think because of my name, they didn't know that I was a woman. <laughs> so they, didn't know, they, they, didn't, they didn't know Abby they, was a woman? They, <laughs> they, I mean, they think of it as Abe. So they didn't know that I was a woman and they picked me. They said, okay, you, we need somebody that does, uh, speaks French and, and, uh, and, you know, you've had all this criminal law experience because sometimes they, they set up these roadblocks, but with me, I had too much. So uh, they couldn't do it. So, and then they also didn't really know who I was. I think they thought that I would be just somebody to come in and operate, um, you know, like they were used to and be all in awe of all, all of that stuff. So I, I was picked and then the, the, the client uh, was picked me. And uh, his name was Starcis Mouwini and uh, he was charged with, with war crimes. Mm. Uh, he had run an officer's school. But anyway, so uh, I eventually uh, went to uh, the, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda is located in Arusha, Tanzania. And I had never been to Africa. I spent a lot of time in Europe, but I'd never been to Africa. So I was really excited. I just, That's I was great. really excited. Well, we're, we're, so we're going to get into that one later in the show. Before we jump ahead to that, though, uh, I know you have, uh, we'll, we'll provide a very detailed resume on Abby's background so folks can read it. But you also in, found time because as it, when you took that plunge into international human rights litigation, because you do it as a practitioner, one of the things we want to talk about today is what's the difference between a practitioner and uh, other folks who get involved in this space? And is it uh, hurting 
international justice, but you started a group called Hear Their Cries uh, with some of your colleagues out in Europe, uh, which in, is, is involved in stopping child rape and sexual abuse by none other than an international or organization. Tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that. So, yes, I'm a founding member of Hear Their Cries, uh, along with uh, uh, the great uh, Ed Flaherty, who's just right. a, a tremendous lawyer, and, uh, and uh, he's an American lawyer, but he is, as you say, based in Geneva, and, and Andrew McLeod, another uh, excellent lawyer who is from Australia, but generally based uh, in the UK. And the, the, because the problem is that we had, not, it's not only the peacekeepers, but there's a tremendous problem with with uh, uh, the, the NGOs, not only the United Nations, uh, but all of them, they get out into these poverty-stricken areas, and for some reason, they start going, they're, they become pedophiles, or maybe they were already. So you've had lots of instances where this has happened. Um, there was a, the, the 2010 whistleblower issue where they, the, the Nebraska police officer busted a ring of, of UN folks who were holding uh, uh, basic slaves uh, from, from in Bosnia uh, that the UN was, uh, UN staffers were the major source of their, uh, the, the, the money-making of the, the, the traffickers. So anyway, so yes, we, I do, I, I am a founding member of Hear Their Cries and we uh, work all over the world. We're currently working on some DNA testing and it's gotten, and we're doing pretty well with it actually. We found a couple of, of fathers because these, these UN uh, uh, staffers uh, produce children all over the world and then they, then they run away. So we like to see, uh, we like to see them held to account and, and sometimes they're even willing to, uh, pay support uh, when we finally uh, chase them down. Yeah, it, it, it's a great program. We're going to provide links on the, uh, on the podcast setting so people can visit the website and support them. Uh, it's, they do, you do phenomenal work. And it gets to you, this is a tough subject matter. Um, why do you think, not just in child sex trafficking and human trafficking generally, but this space is you, you have to have a good stomach for it or it's going to be a daily struggle and the practice of law is always challenging of course but you know these type of cases because how long the justice cycle takes it can take years uh, to find justice for people who've been victimized and aren't quite and, and the other way as well uh, before we get to the international structures how it's done what is the most challenging thing about the work you do because we've had a lot of chat about this and why do you think lawyers stay away from it in part because of the subject matter, or is it, 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 it take a special type of person to do this sort of work? It takes um, a certain type of person to do it uh, properly. Uh, the, a lot of times I think, uh, and I get lots of calls and I'm so happy to get them and to take them uh, from younger uh, people, men and women. Um, and I, uh, what should they do? How can they prepare themselves to take uh, these kinds of cases? Because sometimes I think they think it's, uh, there's some glamor associated with it. There really isn't glamor associated with it, but, but to the extent that you can save somebody's life or that you can really help somebody, uh, it's worthwhile. So um, the best 
I think the best way to explain it is if you spend enough years just trying cases and, and getting batted around the courtroom, and you know you have some wins and you have some losses, but you learn a tremendous amount and there's just no substitute for that experience. So then, and this is what I tell these people, you can go into the international arena and you can actually really help people. Uh, yes, it's devastating. Uh, the 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 what these people have been through is is uh, uh, you, you really really uh, difficult. And the only thing that we can do uh, to to make sure you know to help them is to try to do whatever little part that we play uh, and make it better. So so to the extent that you can improve somebody's life, you know that has to be it. Uh, you can't dwell on this hard, I mean, terrible stuff Stuff happens in these conflicts, terrible, terrible stuff to children, to adults, uh, uh, just just really terrible. Yeah. And this yeah. is, this is we'll get to the ICC, but this is one of the problems. I truly am uh, uh, engaged with people and, and uh, just uh, anecdotally, you know, you'll find that if you ever uh, talk to witnesses who I've had to interview, who were live witnesses, who, 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 who that I've had to call them in court. Almost a hundred percent of them, in all of my years, have ended up just liking me very much and being wishing that I was representing them and all that. And that the, 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 the reason it's very simple. Why? Because I I care about what I'm doing, and I am very respectful to all of those that I come in contact with. So and, of course they like me. And of course, well, who can't like you, Abby? Come on. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'll Abby, tell come you on. about that. I, no, no, they don't, the, oh, the, oh, the well, United well, Nations. Well, oh, we're, we're, we're good. In fact, that's where we're gonna start. We're gonna take our first break right here. And we're going to jump into a few things. One, the UN system and all these problems that it, it seems to be having. And then of course the ICC, but, when we come back, the very first thing I want to chat about briefly is this, why does this space end up with so many academics and not practitioners? Not that I have anything against academics, I don't, uh, but there, there's a certain balance and I want you to chat with our listeners about that because I think it's important. We'll be, uh, we'll be right back with Abby Jules. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. And we're back with Abby. Abby, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I, Happy I, to be here. I know that we usually do this at the beginning of the podcast, but 
I, I'm in Old Town. You're still in Washington D.C., right? You're you're faring That's okay during this. We'd be doing this in person usually, but we have to follow uh, super social distancing, so we're doing this remotely today. Um, and uh, thank you for taking time to do it. I know you're extremely busy. Uh, before we took this break, we were chatting a bit about what it takes to be a a, a good and effective practitioner in international litigation of this sort especially when one considers that you're going up against international organizations that have sovereign immunity. And uh, sometimes you have to go up against sovereigns when you're litigating uh, people who maybe commit war crimes, which we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. However, you and I have talked a whole lot about this issue in this space or reality that there's not many practitioners, or maybe there should be more practitioners versus people who've never practiced. So, uh, I'm struck that we don't have a lot of that. That could be in economics. You know, maybe younger lost, younger students are looking at another career track, and maybe this may not have uh, as much money as they think there is to make. And you shouldn't really just do this for the money, but you have to make a living. And, and uh, this can't be a purely pro bono practice. If not, you could move the profession because people have to work and get paid for what they do. But also, I do notice that there's an inordinate, and I don't think it's economics, by the way. I think a lot of it is the unknown, where people jump into this exactly not knowing what you just talked about. This is hard work. It's not glamorous work. Uh, the bulk of this work is done behind the scenes. If you have to end up in the media, most of the time it's because the system is broken. And of course, getting the media or public attention on a case when you need it is not easy either. But why are there so many non-practitioners, not, not, not many litigators or not many defense lawyers in this space? at least compared to the, let's say, academics, policy people that maybe haven't even tried a case? That, uh, I, I'm so happy for that question uh, because it is a very, uh, it's a significant uh, problem that uh, I have myself and some of our colleagues. And there, of course, there's a place for academia and there's a place for academics, but it isn't in the courtroom. <laughs> And to the extent that they rely on academics to be judges and to 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 represent the accused, it, it things of course fall apart because they just you know an academic isn't trained to do it. I, now I would say that based on my experience, uh, the UN and a lot of these international uh, tribunals encourage uh, academics. To come forward, and when they get to pick, when the when the apparatus of the international tribunal is is permitted to choose who will provide uh, representation, they will absolutely a hundred percent of the time go for the academic. They do not. the The UN does not like uh, practitioners. Uh, many of the NGOs, you know, NGO has all, almost become a dirty word uh, lately too, because they don't like practitioners either, particularly uh, technicians uh, and people who understand uh, the rule of law and how it's supposed to work. So, so, uh, so, so you're saying that some, of, without naming any of the organizations, you think that within the NGO space where you have groups that are out there advocating on human rights, there tends to be this uh, resistance to having folks like you and me be involved in this space. Is that, am I, am I, is that correct? Uh, 
a hundred percent because we would say it, it's all about uh, the money that you can raise and the money that you can put. It's not, not for you and I, it's about life-saving activity. For these NGOs, it's about making a lot of noise and, uh, and they're putting, they all have agendas. And mm. so, uh, except for, uh, you know, very few, and it's a problem, a huge problem at the International Criminal Court, uh, and they, they inject themselves. I mean, I've been in rooms where they're talking about uh, uh, law and legal uh, 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 crimes, and the language uh, that that there are non-lawyers and non-judges, people without any legal training, sitting there talking about the language that should be used, which to me is uh, uh, crazy. You know, so I'm, I, 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 I'm glad you raised that and, and, and hold that thought for one second, because I want to go, go a little deeper on that point. I've been yeah, in meetings, just... on practitioner side, I've been in uh, meetings with those type of scenarios where you have a, a complex international case and when we ask, when we basically ask, well, where's the evidence for that? Mm -hmm. And what are you, because in federal court, we have the federal rules of evidence, right? We have the federal rules of civil procedure. Exactly. We, we, ha we have certain guidelines that we must follow. We have this also in DC courts. I practice in DC, I practice in Virginia. We have to follow those rules. When I try to use uh, that mindset with these international groups, it's like I'm talking another language to them and they get very angry or, and frustrated when we start asking those questions. It is, and by the way, most of the time we're on the same team, but they want to get to Z without going through A, B, C, D, E. And uh, sometimes, for example, you have this knee-jerk reaction of making a lot of noise in the media, for example, which may or may not be indicated in a case. I mean, you would hear their cries. I know you work with diplomacy, you work with awareness legal action, but you also want to protect your whistleblowers. But you have to know when to use those tools. A lot of times when an, a, a, an attorney gets involved and you're trying to prepare a case against, let's say, a, 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 a human rights abuser, somebody who's committed a crime against humanity, uh, it is a certain level of frustration when you start pressing them hard on, okay, where's the evidence of this? How do you know that? Who gave you that? Mm -hmm. Is that person reliable? Right. And why is this just because they're not lawyers or do you think it's politics or do you think these two groups shouldn't be mixing? Well, they're for each one of these tribunals and essentially every entity that you find uh, at the United Nations, when, it, when they set them up, it's always about where the money is. Uh, it's why you, you see breakdowns often. Uh, the the victims are often not protected but but uh, they are used yeah. i ran into many victims when i was uh, doing my case at the at the rwanda tribunal and they they thought that i walked on water i was a defense lawyer mm. okay i was defending the accused and these people thought i was the greatest thing since sliced bread that's an old mm saying but yeah. <laughs> anyway i mean they it's just uh, uh so so i i like to think that i am on the right side of this no matter who i'm representing uh because uh that's what i do exactly what you said i go to the place i look at the evidence um, and it's the U.S. system and the way that they train uh, U.S. lawyers were really, it's even the, in the U.K. And there's, I have some very, very uh, 
very smart uh, friends and colleagues from the UK, and they even sound much smarter than me. But, but I <laughs> well, just because accent, it, yeah, <laughs> just because they have an accent doesn't make them smarter. But anyhow, but they are really they are really smart. I'm teasing. But they're I'm not. Teasing. But they're not. They're not trained <laughs> like we are. Uh, uh, to to actually get down, and they're not even supposed to do it. So solicitors prepare the case, and the barristers try. Right, right. But anyway, when you get into this, this you can't help but uh, 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 feel empathy with these people. Everybody, everybody that's involved in these in these tribunals. I'm talking about the the, the those that are charged. Not everyone is Adolf Hitler, and I know this well. Okay, when we think of war crimes, we kind of think of Adolf Hitler uh, and, and, his, uh, and his folks, because we think of Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but the present day, uh, this is not uh, who we're trying. And in fact, what I've seen is that the bad, bad actors, the really terrible ones, uh, uh, like uh, Bashir in, in, uh, in Sudan, they don't get tried at any court ever. No, no. And that's, and that's, you know, inter- it's, it's a good segue to the, the, some of your work with Wanda. And I spoke to a, one of the former prosecutors there who's here in the U.S. now. Uh, he's a great guy. And we, we, we chatted a bit about that process. And you know, the one I, I've asked them, you know, what could you have done differently? And what could have, uh, what's one functional, forget about the uh, you know, we, we all want justice and how we get to justice. We could do 10 podcasts and we, we wouldn't get the same answer. But uh, the one thing he said that he wished he had had at the time was not more money, not more media attention, but properly trained lawyers who knew how to try a case and who had actually spent time either trying them Collecting, ev- helping collect evidence, building files, building the argument for or against an accused under that process. Because he said that uh, really, if the, if the ultimate goal is justice, you're not going to get justice from a press release. You're not going to get justice from uh, 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 TV shows or celebrities who go around pretending to be lawyers uh, or vice versa. It's going to take, <laughs> it's going to take, well, that's, I won't go deep into that, but you know where I'm headed. You know where I was headed with that. Right. And, and, right. and, and ultimately, uh, he felt that what he needed the most, he didn't have because every, uh, some, sometimes uh, they were in a rush. And when you make a rush, and you make mistakes. Is, and he's, of course, and he's 100% correct. Uh, 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 Fatou Bensouda, who's the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court, who was, uh, she had no criminal law experience when she arrived, and I don't think she ever had a, a trial. Uh, but I know how she got into the international work because she came to the, the first job in the international criminal tribunal field that she had was that she was a line prosecutor uh, uh, when Steve Rapp, who actually did have a little bit of experience, he was an American, and they put him at the head of the at the International Criminal Tribunal for uh, Rwanda because uh, the the lawyers that they had there at the time were just there. They brought in another American lawyer who was working on behalf of the accused. And he was just, you know, the, 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 kicking their behinds up one side and down the other and they couldn't get anywhere. And they were in danger of not getting the, the all their convictions. 
So they brought in Steve Rapp, who is is a okay. He he didn't. He also hasn't tried nearly as many cases as as I have tried. But uh, he's a former uh, prosecutor in the uh, Northern District of Iowa, where they've got about three cows. So he can't. <laughs> you know. So there's not a lot of trials up there. Anyway, they brought him in. He needed help. He brought her in. It, that whole problem is 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 huge in the international arena right. uh, like he was telling you i mean it is huge they they have uh, very few uh, uh decent uh lawyers uh, right. uh from uh, just generally you know, um, you know what this is the you know this is more uh, not a, a a sexier reason as far as headline headline you know headline drawing but uh, it's one of the many reasons, and even though former National Security Advisor John Bolton, uh, who I agreed with some of what he did, I didn't agree with everything he did when he was in the Trump administration, but on this issue with the International Criminal Court, uh, he was spot on, the administration was spot on, and continues to be spot on, uh, because it's an entity that's broken, but more importantly, under our legal system, the Congress has never, you know, the Rome Statute has never been, uh, you know, there's no treaty. So there's really no connection to it. Uh, so I think it's missing one essential element just because oh, President Obama's team, uh, or the prior team, I mean, uh, decreed that this was gonna be the way things were gonna be done. It's not consistent under our, it's not under our constitution. So as far as I'm concerned, it's just as effective as the JCPOA, which uh, it was nothing, just an agreement, a political document, except that the ICC, they went one step further. They, they, they just set this super court up, this super national tribunal, a bunch of countries added their names to it, to an already broken international system. And when I look at the ICC and I look at the people who make it up, it's a, some component of its parts, right? So a nation, mm -hmm. a state party uh, that's a member uh, to the ICC uh, that has a horrible or non-existent legal system, I don't even know why they're allowed to participate in this thing. Just because they sign a piece of paper, I'm not gonna pick on any one country but there are several state parties uh, to the ICC uh, that have horrible national legal systems that frankly should be taking care of their problems first, making their institution stronger. And then if they want to deal with some international organization, do it so correctly uh, under their national laws. We here, of course, under the US system uh, should not be participating in the ICC. And unlike some of my fellow lawyers, I supported and still support sanctioning any ICC official that abuses their power and go after people because when they go after people uh, without evidence and it's freewheeling ways, they hurt the reputation, damage people, and frankly, pervert the cause of justice in some cases because they're contaminating potential cases that could be brought in a, in a variety of ways to bring justice to true victims and not some of these show campaigns that they're doing um, uh, at the ICC. That it's not, it might, it's not a serious organization. It really isn't. And if it was gonna, if it was going to be, and if it can be, it needs fundamental reform. You have some pretty strong views about this organization and others. But what do you think is the one? thing? I mean, first of all, do you think? I mean, try and convince me. I'm not a big supporter well, well, of these mechanisms. Should I be? Uh, uh, okay. So I think. That's a that's a big question, you because I have uh, serious issues. First of all, I uh, too agree with John Bolton's position on uh, all of this. 
the, 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 the signing on to the Rome statute kind of obligates these countries if they are found, if, if somebody up in there finds them not to have uh, a, a sufficient legal system, then they can go after uh, their heads. Now, there, there shouldn't be any way on this good green earth that they would ever uh, be able to go after the U.S. And, and, and God help us because of what you were talking about with the rules of evidence and so forth. They give, they have uh, uh, their own statute, their evidentiary statute, but it's, it's, it's uh, almost optional. So they, the, hey, the, hey, Abby, their political Abby, agenda. Abby, Abby, we lost you there one second. Can you repeat that for us, the last yes, five seconds the, or so? The, they, they have, um, their, their political, they have a statute. They have uh, evidentiary statutes, but uh, they're almost optional. They often ignore them, and they uh, they let their political agenda drive what they do. Uh, so, and this is why they they hire people. You know, you had Ocampo before uh, uh, Fatou Bensouda. I mean, the the, the prosecutors are just uh, you know none of them are are of any moment. They just kind of shuffle them through there, and they get somebody. Uh, who does what they're supposed to do and who decides, I guess it's sort of the, uh, uh, the ASP or the Assembly of States Party, those signatories, those uh, countries that have signed on to the Rome Statute. So I think that uh, uh, it's a problem I would never, and, and all my colleagues feel this way, no matter whether they're Republicans or Democrats, but everybody who works in this uh, space uh, does not believe that the U.S. ought to be subject to the to the jurisdiction, ought to sign on to the Rome Statute no, at all, um, uh, because they, they they there's no accountability, and there's too much uh, uh, there's too much uh, doing things the way that they that the way their political agenda demands whatever it is at the time. I mean, uh, you see a lot of this, uh, and I don't mean to bring in another uh, agency but the, uh, of the UN, but the, the, everything that's happened with WHO, it's yeah. the same. Yeah. They, they do what they want. They go to where the money is. The UN now is going to where the money is when, you know, when you have a terrible thing happening around the world, such as the explosion in Lebanon or whatever it is. You know, but before with the with the Rwanda tribunal, it was the all those people killed in that very short period of time. So let me let me ask you something. Going back to the Clinton administration, when they signed the, the officials who signed the Rome Statute, and the amount of taxpayer money and time and energy, and political, frankly, uh, uh, force that had to be brought to bear to make it happen. I mean, they never submitted it for Senate ratification. Correct. And 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 the Bush administration. Um, uh, said it had not joined it, but, but, and you know where I'm going with this, why have certain U.S. administration used ICC sometimes as part of their policy if we're not even part of it? it does, I don't think it makes much sense, but why do you think it happened? It's political because, I mean, this is supposed to be the court that was going to deal with war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, when national courts could not do that. And I know there's a rule that does that, but frankly, you and I both know at least I believe that you should always redouble efforts 
to hold people to account in your national courts. Uh, punting to an international setting uh, can be done, but should it be this body? I have, again, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my counsel for that, but why do you think the Clinton administration didn't submit for ratification, but more importantly, why have subsequent administrations, except this one, still made reference to or tried to use the organization politically? Well, uh, I think they kind of want to be half in and half out. Uh, I, I, that's why they were why they were there, uh, but but they weren't very uh, uh, effective. And and when they sent in uh, somebody in in my this my view is that they were able to run circles around the the people that they sent in there uh, to interact with the International Criminal Court, particularly under. Um, the last administration. Um, it, it probably what should happen is somebody uh, with some years of trial experience, because there is no substitute for it, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world. That's the person who should be able to be in there. Somebody with some sense who can actually watch these things. You don't want a, a you know, the diplomat or a um, or a, and there's nothing wrong with diplomats. We need diplomats, right. but, or an academic or, you know, you just, it's just because they'll get, they, they, they're going to have circles run around them. Yeah. Well, As I, it is, you've got intelligence services, which are very big on the, in these uh, international courts. Yeah, I, 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 when we come back, we got to take one more break, but uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to go a little bit deeper into this because I believe that this, if we're, if, this requires almost changing our constitution. There's some very serious legal uh, and political ramifications of an ICC uh, that I think were not very well thought through and that the Rome statute, frankly, is unconstitutional and we shouldn't be playing at the margins with an international organization that's part, frankly, of an international system that's fundamentally flawed, broken, and in need of, of, of reform. And in the meantime, while the politicians and the diplomats and the academics argue about what's the best mechanism or not, there are people, victims, the people that lawyers are supposed to be helping and, 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 and defending that need attention. And, and those cases uh, don't ever seem to be talked about. There's genocides taking place right now on the African continent and people just turn around and not pay attention to it. There's some very horrible things happening in the Middle East that people are not paying attention to that rank that rise to the level of a serious, serious violation of fundamental rights, human rights, atrocity crimes, that we're not focusing on it. So when you look at it from the petitioner's vantage point, it's a, a bottom-up maybe uh, analysis of it that creating this structure, I thought they felt back then that they thought it would be a this great fix when the U.S., as you know, has been a leader in this space. If it wasn't for the U.S., the Nuremberg trials would not have happened. It was set up in such mm -hmm. a way. Certain standards were set. Some were great. Some were not so great. But the Nuremberg process worked. I don't believe this business about victor's court. And I, I, I mean, it, it was tried for the first time. And, and it was done in such a way. We learned from it. We studied from it. And we have ways to go forward. But I ultimately think that locally always trumps these international organizations and that we should redouble efforts to do more local accountability and judicial processes and spending taxpayer money on these international experiments. So when we come back, uh, I want Abby to pick up a little bit more on that and we'll go deeper into one of her cases. We'll be right back.
And we're back. Abby, right before we took that break, I was talking about the ICC, the importance of local accountability versus these international organizations. You've had cases, you've been involved with the ICC. What's your takeaway from this uh, as far as should it be improved? Should we just start from scratch? I think Congress has to pick up the ball here and take this a little more seriously because there are certain forces that don't want this to go away and they're not stopping. And they're going just because we're not participating in it right now and because we put sanctions on it doesn't mean another president comes in and decides let's pick up where we left off. So what do you think has to happen from the victim standpoint, from the, from the, from the person who's been accused of something that, that they, may, they want to defend themselves? Well, uh, first of all, the, the International Criminal Court uh, doesn't appear to be serving the, the victims uh, uh, at all, uh, actually. Um, they give a lot of lip service to it. Now, uh, the, the International Criminal Court is a billion euro, okay, so wow. uh, more than a billion dollar industry. Um, and none of those countries, none of these staff, none of those people are going to let it just go away. And, and as, I, as I mentioned before the break, you've got um, the major intelligence services. There's evidence that they're all operating in there. It, it behooves the U.S. to try to get, uh, to, to get in a position where we can at least see a uh, monitor what's going on uh, there. Uh, no, we should never sign on to the, to the Rome statute. I, I agree with you there. Um, but I do think that uh, we can uh, uh, monitor uh, uh, it. Uh, and we have to figure out a way, uh, it's with all of these international tribunals, uh, they've figured out a way to keep us out of the of the ICC because they say it's not a UN uh, entity, and so they don't have to hire any Americans, and they don't. You know, we don't have any U.S. judges, but we have precious few U.S. judges uh, in all these international tribunals, and we need more. We need more in order to force uh, accountability. Otherwise, they just go off and, and, and they do what they want. Um, they're also, something we haven't discussed is this universal jurisdiction, mm -hmm. which a lot of countries have. And, you know, you sometimes see uh, France just decide, okay, we're going to try this guy. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and a lot of times they do, they'll just pick up these, these people. Uh, they certainly haven't tried it through with U.S. nationals, but... Uh, uh, because I think there's a lot of uh, reasons that they, they wouldn't be able to. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a problem, uh, uh, the International Criminal Court, and with all, with all of its corruption and everything else, it's, it ha it's not going anywhere. I, I even think that they're holding hearings now when most local courts are not. Yeah. Uh, because of yeah. COVID, I think that the, they're they're because they they're they're worried too. It's it's an incredible uh, situation for those judges financially. Yeah, I, think, I mean, they give them housing. They they make about uh, housing. They they get housing. They get housing. They hmm. get they get everything, and they get first class uh, air travel. And, how much of these I mean, judges? How much do these judges make? Do you think? It, I I I. I've looked it up. It's like 250,000 um, euro 
a year, something wow. like that. That's that's a healthy. What they're getting it's very very high, and and of course then you have other other tribunals uh, which we've talked about where we don't even know what the salaries are, but I can guarantee you that they're high, and they, and and then not only that, and then they're uh, this this made a difference like last year. I don't know going forward how much of a difference it's going to make, but their their children seventy five percent of their uh, education is paid for and. There are lots and lots of benefits. That's how they get their staff up to it. This, this, uh, this, uh, you know, staff that is uh, kind of lackluster. You know, they I, you don't know, really. I, you know, this doesn't make me very popular in 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 uh, our circles here in Washington when, when you talk to diplomats about this thing. But I believe the international system should be subjected to a very robust forensic audit, the bottom up. Oh yes. And starting oh, and starting and, and right that here. That should make you. That should make you very popular well they well you know very popular what the heck you know i've spent many years advising companies uh on complying with export controls and sanctions and working on human rights issues and if i were to use those standards we use in the private sector and the private practice of law against these organizations a lot of these people would not nobody would sign consent agreements with these guys because a lot of them and it's some of its criminal behavior some of it perverts the cause of justice. oh yes even right here oh, oh yes even right here in the Western Hemisphere, where we have the oldest inter-American, uh, the human rights system here is older than the UN. Uh, it's by a few years, so the OAS came first. There's a Commission on Human Rights, has some pretty good mechanisms. You try and move a case to the Commission on Human Rights, uh, you can pro- you, you'll wait. I know people who've had cases there for years. You try and file a precautionary mm-hmm. measure, doesn't matter. They'll act when they want to act. If it's a country that they're ideologically aligned with, maybe they'll act faster. If it's not, they won't. So I think all the international uh, mechanisms and organizations need to be subjected to a very robust forrensic audit, top to bottom, and also and we an need audit. accountability. Accountability we need as well. Accountability. I mean, we need. We have to have it, and the, and the victims are suffering. suffering. You know, with corruption, that that that's who suffers. The victim. Let me ask you on the private sector because we haven't talked much about this, but um, I tend to think that through the private sector, uh, they have a a good role to play. I think in 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 some, especially larger companies, uh, I believe can contribute to uh, improving. Uh, fundamental rights, not because they're imposing it on people, but because I'm one of those types who think when you respect the fundamental rights of people, uh, you tend to have better societies, robust economies, and you have people who just want to go through their life making a living and and not you know dealing with difficult issues like some of the issues we deal with sometimes. And uh, there's different laws around the world that have been adopted for this sort of thing. And, and France even has this law now called the vigilance law, which requires French companies to map the risks of their supply chains. Uh, these are for certain companies. Uh, and they look at things from taking reasonable ve- measures to prevent or mitigate human rights abuses in some cases like labor, um, mm-hmm. es- establishing you know the whistleblowing procedures internally. Some of the things you and I deal with when we advise companies, right? Things that they could do better to... Uh, because it makes it makes for good business, right? So it's it's a, mm-hmm, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a kind of a compliance space, the global governance space. But what do you think of that as something that moves in parallel with these systems? Ultimately, not a replacement for strong national courts, uh, transparency, local governments, 
to deal with some of these challenges out there? Do you think it helps to have companies involved with this or should companies just stay away from it? Uh, well, there was a, uh, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know if I'm prepared to say that companies should stay away from it because I think, uh, you know, like with everything else, you have good companies and you have bad companies. I think uh, they, they had a, a tribunal that was set up by some, uh, uh, just some people that uh, anti-something activists, I don't know what they were. What, anyway, they called it the, the Monsanto Tribunal. Right. And they they had a whole bunch of different people on there. Also, you know, not very, uh, they didn't have, uh, they weren't that experienced and they really didn't know what they were doing, but that wasn't the idea. Now that didn't stay. I thought it was gonna last a lot longer than it did. Uh, it didn't stay, um, but can, can there are certain companies that can contribute a lot uh, to this, I think. Uh, it's a complicated uh, question because you wanna make sure, it, 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 it's gotten so corrupt and you, when you've got governments running it. Mm. So you really need some oversight. And that's what we haven't had with any of these. Um, and so they can, they kind of just operate the way that they, the way that they feel like and whoever has, can get the most uh, nationals in there, whether it's the International Criminal Court and you know, France uh, takes hold of it and gets all their people in. And sometimes they do place uh, uh, intelligence officers in, you know, they call them legal officers, but they're oh, yeah. intelligence yeah. services. It's not, it, it, you know, they all do it. And the Chinese play a big part in all of these tribunals. They have their nationals on there. The U.S. has nobody, but the, but the, but the Chinese, the Russians, they, they had the Russian person who was the head of uh, the, uh, the defense uh, services uh, for the United Nations staff, which right. is kind of crazy. But you anyway. know, I, th I think some of these uh, some of these private actors through their compliance departments and those that set up, uh, you know, the integrity of a supply chain and getting into places where you have that market power uh, tends to can be, if properly channeled, a good disruptor of of some of these criminal activities. But ultimately, you're right. This has to be done by courts. When you get to that accountability phase, it's not something you want companies doing, but I see the companies partly as a preventative and, and, and not gaming because interestingly, the international system, these courts, for example, like CSIG in, in Guatemala or the CCs now in, in, in El Salvador and the other one they want to set up, these organizations, I mean, they, they, the UN and OAS organizations that they'll throw into these countries. It's like, imagine if uh, the Virginia bar or the DC bar had a UN body looking over its shoulder and monitoring their lawyers and judges to see if they're doing their job the right way. So you have a terrible. bunch of- Terrible. No, it's, it's terrible. It's, with, it's, it's horrible. It, it, it undermines rule of law. It undermines I, I, sovereignty. Really against it. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's yes, really a terrible thing. And, it is no, and then ultimately, there's still people whose fundamental rights, human rights are being violated. And somehow, a proponents of these entities, they mean well, but- unless they spend time in the trenches doing this sort of work uh, and, and work, working with the victims and working with the people on the other side, the lawyers, the jurors who have to try these cases, it sometimes just makes it impossible to advance but, the cause of justice. Right, and meaning well isn't enough for me. And I don't appreciate it because 
you know, uh, you know, your 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 ten year old means well when he does certain <laughs> things that yeah, he doesn't right. know he should be doing. You're but right. meaning well is just later for that. And also, you know, they just, they, we have to have some accountability and we need it for people. Meaning well isn't enough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and to, 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 and giving lip service to, you know, I care about the victims. I care about uh, the fact that these people were raped. Well, okay, that's great. Now, uh, you know, put your money where your mouth is and let's do something about it. And, and I, 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 I am really offended by people who are like, oh, I, uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they pretend, or maybe they're not pretending, but they act like they're deeply concerned. And then what? And then what happens? Yeah, they get into a place where they shouldn't be, where they're completely out of their depth, and they mess everything up. You know, exactly, in terms exactly. of, uh, and, they get involved with, with you and I, and then we come to, uh, we, we appreciate that they mean well. Yeah. But it's, well, you know, the goal, the goal is never to have to ramp up and prevent war crimes and prevent these and prevent uh, atrocity crimes. Exactly. And exactly. It, it doesn't make any sense to use these tribunals to prevent them, because if you're having to create them to prevent them, it's too late. Exactly uh, right. The early That's warning, hundred percent. Yeah, the early warning signs are there, and uh, uh, for those of you who, who are interested in reading about this, we'll talk about it. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to recommend some resources to you, but then we're going to wrap up by talking to Abby of this accountability issue and why should Americans even care about this? I mean, it's not going to be an issue that comes up in the presidential cycle. It's not an issue that people talk about. But we're going to talk a little bit about why Americans should care and what you can do if you want to get more involved with this. We'll be right back. back for our final segment. We were talking before the break about accountability and how to hopefully not have to have a war crimes tribunal because by the time you set these up, it's been, you know, they're not going to prevent them. I believe the history will prove, prove that out. Precedent will prove that that doesn't happen. And for those of you who want to read more about this, there's a great website uh, put together by Dr. Gregory Stanton's organization called Genocide Watch, who's done a lot of work in this space. He not only has a background in, in, in the genocide and preventing it, but has also an interesting matrix, uh, the steps that lead to genocide and uh, other uh, mass atrocity crimes. And you'll learn a lot from that website. We'll provide a link there. Uh, Abby, you were talking earlier about accountability. And most American listeners uh, who listen to these podcasts will ask, well, we always try and close by talking a little bit about why should they care about this? You know, why should American taxpayer monies, for example, be sent to the United Nations, you know, is it time to revisit that? And uh, I'm glad that we're having that national debate right now about the UN system. And we haven't had one, you know, I think it needs to be audited. We talked about that before. That's never happened. But if you're an American who's never had any exposure to this and you were trying to convince them that this is a good idea, why should they think this is a good idea? If everything we've just talked about is it's this parade of horribles, of things that it does wrong, but ultimately brings, you know, going back to the beginning of why you became an international human rights lawyer, why you defend uh, and help victims who've been persecuted by governments and bad actors. uh, That's ultimately part of the reason why lawyers do this sort of thing. 
what is an American, what should an American taxpayer be looking for if they want to learn more about this and why should they care? Well, I think it, uh, even going back to Nuremberg, I mean, it, it, it's, it's uh, and you saw how the, how Germany, you know, took its tentacles and, and all of a sudden the whole world was at risk. Mm. You've seen with WHO that disease anywhere is disease everywhere. Mm. So, uh, you know, and so we can't, I, I think it's in all of our interests uh, to uh, stop these uh, 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 killers from uh, operating uh, uh, with impunity. So the idea of an international uh, criminal court is a good idea, but it's not, it, not the way that it, it's configured now. Uh, also with the UN, the UN does a lot of things uh, that are good if, if, if the areas haven't been corrupted. Uh, it is just the, it, the main thing now is to get into the accountability uh, and, to, and to figure out a system where the uh, parties, uh, the, the active parties are, are held accountable. Uh, and, and then it's important. If uh, you, at this point, if we let all these things spiral out of control, it's going to go the way of uh, where we had uh, the reason that we've got COVID is because WHO was just worried about where they could get, you know, where they could get money and, and who was giving them money and, and who was telling them to do what and who had the most seats there. It's the same with these international tribunals. And, 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 uh, and by the way, it's, um, it also, this, you know, we, it, we don't want to leave our listeners thinking that these organizations, despite them being weak and corrupt, can't impact our even our legal system. I mean, we didn't talk much about the International Court for Justice, which is a totally different organization, um, not like the International Criminal Court, but there have been some important cases in the U.S. legal system. I think Medellin versus Texas comes to mind back in 2007, mm -hmm. 2008. Now, remember that case involving whether or not we were going to... Um, heed the recommendations of the ICJ uh, of, of not, I think, uh, uh, providing a, an arrested Mexican national of their rights under the, under the Geneva Conventions uh, for consular service. Mm -hmm. and, some other, and so there's, there's a lot of cases like the, where, where these decisions, uh, the ICJ decision, some others have tried to creep into our jurisprudence. And fortunately, that case turned out. Uh, if I could just uh, just interject just a yeah, tiny jump thing, in. which, is that, which is that the ICJ has we actually they allow american representation so with that's right the icj yeah. is probably less of a problem than a lot of these other uh, your point is well taken of course but the icj is probably since we actually do get uh, get a position but then they they put these same people they put these same people, these uh, academics, people with not much trial experience. And so then you get decisions that you don't like from the ICJ and then they come uh, seeping into the, to the, to the US courts. So uh, the most important thing is to shake them up and force them and, and then, and you know, I understand that it changes with every, uh, administration but when you get a uh, you have to 
it, everybody should be on the same page about this and we about putting practitioners onto these courts about putting people who know what they're doing not putting academics on these courts if we could just have a rule about that even if congress could pass <laughs> a law <laughs> you know well, and and because the president decides uh who who these people are and uh you know well, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think what's important is how, and this is a good contrast, how the ICJ and the ICC came about, how they manifest themselves within our legal system, that the political branches of government have to have a say, and that's been a problem because we haven't had Congress make definitive decisions about many of these tribunals, uh, these modern ones, but uh, we need that clarity because this is not an issue I think that should be left to our federal courts. The judges, federal judges, and tend not to want to get involved in foreign affairs and, and national security issues. They tend to punt. But issues when you represent individual persons, either through the inter-American system or this other case like Medellin v. Texas and some others that find their way into our legal system do have an impact on our legal system, on the rights of Americans, if not properly handled. And look, we live in a, whether we like it or not, I tend to like it. We live in a highly globalized world. People are mm -hmm. a lot more productive than they used to be. I think it's going to continue in that tra upward trajectory. I'm not pessimistic about the future. Quite the opposite. I think there's a lot of exciting things coming in commerce and trade, in new markets being created. We're in the middle of a, of a, of a, of a special moment in history where there's going to be uh, a realignment, economic, political, and, 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 and people are just going to work differently. And if we're going to remain engaged in this interconnected world, uh, the U.S. needs to do so and lead, but uh, and and do it not opaquely like the ICC was set up, but in ways that uh, the political branches have weighed in and not allow these corrupt organizations to remain that way. Look, we pay for we pay a lot of money to the UN, we pay a lot of money to these international some of some of these international tribunals, and some of them, frankly, like the Iran one. Maybe it's time to. Give it, get rid, get rid of, get rid of it, get rid of it. Practitioners who have said that maybe it's outlived its usefulness, uh, but it should always come with a healthy dose of political branch participation, statutory, not exciting stuff uh, that you kind of well, won't make the headlines. But if you're trying to advance the cause of justice, if you're trying to help uh, uh, people who are hurt, if you're trying to prevent uh, these horrible things from happening, so we don't have to have another Nuremberg someday. Uh, uh, we have to take more, I think, steps with our allies in these countries where we see their problems. I don't know how you feel about this, but don't you think it's better well, no, to clean I, up the lawyers and the judges in these countries rather than training corrupt judges and bad lawyers in those well, countries? <laughs> first off, I think that the situation could be righted in a few years. You know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in, in, in some of his books, but if you start to make the right changes uh, and you start to get to put practitioners in there, you will, you will be surprised a few years from now in how the system is doing. Uh, it's gonna, it will shake it up. Uh, the problem is, and, and you know, that, but that's what has to be done. Every, uh, it, periodically, and I, because I represent whistleblowers, so I know that periodically Congress has been holding hearings, and they are, and they have even withheld their UN contributions. But it's not enough. It's it's simply not enough. It's uh, it, it's 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 uh, maybe too little, too late.
but I think we do, I don't think we should let these, if we have a choice, I don't think we should just walk away from these, uh, uh, from these organizations and let them hang out because then, then there's going to be, there will be hell to pay, I think. Yeah, no, and, and you know, uh, to, end that, to end on a high note, and I think taxpayers, uh, American taxpayers, Americans are very generous and if they're presented with a problem, and the U.S. can play a constructive role, they will. And I think it's, it's helpful to keep in context that the international system, at least the one that you and I operate in, is quite new. And it, it reminds me of, of Winston Churchill back in 41, when he was commenting on some of the methodical, uh, merciless butchery that he was seeing, that he, he's quoted as saying, you know, we're in the presence of a crime without a name. That's before the, the word had been uh, genocide. Gen genocide, right. So it came a little bit later with Lemkin and some others, but it's, it's um, in a very short span of time, uh, the world mobilized, they rallied. Uh, you know, if we had rallied the way the world rallied around that issue, the way, you know, over around coronavirus, who knows, maybe. That would have been, we would, if we had had a, a, a non-corrupt WHO, <laughs> where a WHO has been, but it, but it's true, it has been for years, and it, yeah. there, there are other people uh, in the medical field who have, have written books about this and talked about it uh, way before uh, COVID uh, uh, made its uh, made its debut here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that that they don't look at these things in advance they have a they have an agenda, and the agenda pushes them away from actually just. Uh, operating objectively yeah and, and the world today also has you're right and 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 we have a variety of tools and I'll, I'll put on my american exceptionalism hat because i do think we do this better than any other nation in the world despite uh, uh its lack of seam of cohesiveness but we do have very rich sanctions regimes that are based on defense of fundamental rights prevention of 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 of, of, of genocide we have uh a lot of tools that if properly deployed by practitioners when they are asked to do so uh, in a combination are very effective and can be very effective, especially if there's cooperation at the highest levels to advance uh, that, that agenda. It, these things didn't exist in that, with that sophistication you know, 50 years ago. We do have them now. Too bad it took a horrible lesson of the Holocaust to teach us that lesson, but we have it. We now need to continue using it I think mm -hmm. throwing more money to these corrupt, broke international organizations is not the way to do it. I think we have to re, re you know, use that money and that time to help our allies build strong national legal systems. And like you're saying, work through this problem of auditing and forensically auditing this and putting more practitioners on the front lines. And I think you'd see in a very short span of time, improvements. Uh, that, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, you would, and I'd love to see it uh, start happening. Uh, I, I, I would, I would love to see it start happening. So, so let me ask you, Abby, Abby, we're running out of time. So, I just uh, as we close up, I wish we could keep going. Uh, but what's your advice you have to any young, future international human rights litigator? What should he or she think about whether they're in that point? We, we, you and I talk to a lot of young folks who are at the point in their career where they're thinking about, you know, when coming out of law school. They're thinking about where in law they want to practice. We, ha we, ha we have interns that come to us during the summers that want careers in this, but then they ask, how do I make a living doing this? What's your advice to them? 
Okay. Uh, first of all, there, there are two issues. One is you have to make a living. But the other thing is you've got to be useful to these people who are suffering uh, from human rights abuses. So the, the, the first thing to do, and I tell this to people uh, all the time, the first thing to do is to go out and get some, some trial experience. Hopefully we're going to go get back to our, to our lives here where that's going to be possible. That's right. Uh, right. You know, it's been a long, but, but that really is the most important thing to do uh, first. And then you can be of use. You can save lives out here because it's a, it's a skill uh, that not a lot of people have. And, uh, and it's, and you can only get it one way. You can't absorb it. That's right. You've got to get out there and get kicked around. And you know, we only learn from our from our failings. We really don't learn from our successes. So that's what they have to do first. And then you have to. Uh, the lawyers are valuable, and lawyers have to be paid. And nobody should expect. Uh, least of all these United Nations NGO uh, groups should expect them to work for free. They're all out there earning what CEOs earn. Uh, the lawyers and the human rights uh, activists and people who are out there actively saving lives and and putting their lives on the line because people don't like human rights lawyers. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they don't. don't. Yeah, they don't. In fact, uh, uh, we forgot to talk about them, but they're extremely important in this project. Then. Uh, endeavor. Uh, a lot of our friends in the media who could be doing cushy work here, they do phenomenal work. They support us when we need to bring attention to cases. They go to places that nobody wants to go, and and sometimes That's they right. go with lawyers. And, and, and so, so a, a shout out to our friends in the media who do that sort of thing. And also, I think human rights defenders. They're not everybody sitting in palatial offices in New York or Washington D.C. There's a lot of men and women I know that you know. Abby, who are on the front lines doing the documentation, that hard work that not many lawyers do, they can't do it. But if we didn't have those human rights collectors out there collecting this data, sometimes in very dangerous places that if they get caught doing this sort of thing, we can't bring cases, we can't bring sanctions, we, we, we can't suggest to policymakers things to do to stop horrible things from happening. So there's many ways to break into this field, but like you said, uh, it's not about the television shows or the TV interviews or the sensationalist press releases that are issued. Uh, most of this work is done behind the scenes. Right. And, and, and the UN has, has money to pay for this, but they don't like us either. Okay. And that's a, that, <laughs> that's a problem. No, they, it's uh, they don't like us either. So the, uh, so the, 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 that's why the, the that we can't just, uh, uh, just let it go. No, you can't. Uh, and by the way, I, I tell a lot of the young students, I don't know if you agree with this or not, then we'll wrap up. We have two more minutes. Mm -hmm. I tell them that, and they ask, hey, should I go work at the UN or should I go work at the State Department? And I go, look, that's all great. Uh, if, that's, if that's your vocation, that's what life has in store for you, that's fine. But before you do that, try spending two or three years practicing law. Oh, try so try, try cases, uh, do transactional practice, whatever it is, but practice before you go into any type of government agency because it's not the same type of work experience. It's also before you do, before it, when you're going to be uh, representing people, you, you can uh, help uh, them individually, 
uh, you can uh, do the transactions. That's also, there are many individuals involved in that. You have to get that kind of uh, experience uh, before you go into, into government. Government needs good lawyers too. But it's uh, if you go straight into government, then I think you're 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 left to uh, you know you, you miss a lot. You miss a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, Abby, this has been fantastic. I hope we can have you back so we can uh, dig a little deeper into some of the cases that you worked on because they're phenomenal. We're going to provide our listeners with some links to some of your work, and I hope you have a a good rest of the week and that you keep us in mind for next time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. And that's it. We'll be with you next week. Mm -hmm.